Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome to Freedom of Species. My name is Roy Taylor, and Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals, and this includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast in the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website, and recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website. That's 3cr.org.au. And podcasts are also available on our own website, freedomofspecies.org. And all previous podcasts are available by iTunes. And in today's show, we have an interview with the Deputy Director of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, Claire Lindsay. We'll be discussing the centre and also their recent report, Normalising the Unthinkable, the ethics of using animals in research. This is Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you, the very salt of this great country, from Warrnambool to Wonthaggy, from Malakuta to Kootamundra, 3CR, they're kind of cats, they're for the bats, that's independent radio, that's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species, I said the freedom of species. You know what to do, donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope of Victorian Advocates for Animals and 3CR, wishing your species all the best. We'll go to that interview with Claire Lindsay now. So, Claire, could you introduce yourself, first of all? Um, sure. Hello. Um, my name's Claire Lindsay. I'm the Deputy Director of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics. Uh, I've been in post since 2012. Um, my undergraduate degree is in theology from St Andrews. I have a master's from Harvard Divinity School, and I'm currently working on my doctorate at the University of St Andrews on animal uh, and ecological theology. Um, in addition, as part of my role at the centre, I'm associate editor for our Journal of Animal Ethics and associate editor for our um, Palgrave Macmillan series on animal ethics. Um, it's a book series, uh, we're currently up to about 15 titles at the moment. And I'm director of the annual Oxford Animal Ethics Summer School, which this year is on the ethics of using animals in research. What is the journal you are an editor of? Um, it's the Journal of Animal Ethics. Uh, we're in our fifth year now. It's um, published um, jointly with the, uh, the Centre and um, the University of Illinois Press. It's published twice a year, and in it um, we publish research on uh, the issue of animal ethics from uh, as many disciplines as possible. And... You're at St Andrews University, that's in Scotland, but the centre is at Oxford. How does that work? <laughs> um, well, I uh, I go up and down to St Andrews and um, I present, and uh, because I was there as an undergraduate, uh, I know my supervisor really well, so we um, talk uh, on the phone and things, but I'm, I am based in Oxford full-time. Okay. How did you get into this field? 
Well, you could say that I was raised in the animal movement. Uh, my father, the director of our centre, is Professor Andrew Lindsay, and uh, me and all my siblings were raised vegetarian. Um, but fundamentally, I think I saw clearly as a child uh, the value and the importance of animals. One of my first memories is standing up in front of my whole school and explaining why I would not be going to the zoo with everybody else. Um, and I had a clear sense of right and wrong, especially in regard to animals. Um, and it was only when I, uh, when I gotten, became much older that I came to understand that this was animal ethics. And um, it became a very natural uh, career path for me. But you went into studying theology as opposed to something like philosophy, which is uh, often a path for those interested in ethics, yeah? Uh, yes, I began in theology because um, I was also, my father was chaplain at Essex University when I was a child, so you could say I was also raised with institutional Christianity. And I've always been interested in the bigger questions, why is there something rather than nothing at all, um, these kinds of things. And uh, I, Christian moral philosophy, um, I have a strong basis uh, to talk about animal ethics as well, so it's uh, different, but also <laughs> another way in. Fantastic. So, can you tell listeners about the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics? Uh, what's its background? How is it formed? And, and and what's the connection with Oxford University? Or is there one? Sure. Um, so, the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics was founded in 2006 by our director, Andrew Lindsay. Um, its goal is to pioneer ethical perspectives on animals um, through academic teaching, research and publication. Uh, we're completely independent of uh, Oxford University, um, so we have complete academic freedom, uh, which we love. Um, the centre is comprised of an international fellowship of more than 90 academics. Um, drawn from the sciences and the humanities as interdisciplinary as possible um, and we have more than 100 academic advisors to the centre um, and basically our goal as a centre is to try and help people think differently about animals and we do that uh, through publishing our journal and our book series um, through talking to the media and people like you um, but also through uh, having summer schools and we really act as a uh, international academic animal fellowship. Uh, animal ethics in particular is quite a marginalised subject in academia and we're really here to try and help people uh, get their research published and uh, to promote it as a field. Why choose Oxford? Because that's uh, potentially a bit of a controversial choice with the amount of animal experimentation that's done there. Um, I I don't think it's a controversial choice. It was a natural choice. Um, uh, my father's been a, a member of the Faculty of Theology for over 20 years. He held the first post um, in animal uh, ethics and welfare at Mansfield College, and he's still um, active in the faculty now. Um, Oxford is a controversial place to be here, but I think that's the main reason why it's so important we're here because uh, Oxford needs a voice for animals that isn't the uh, so-called animal extremists and isn't the hardline scientists and we are um, we try to be that voice outside of the university context Does the Oxford Centre comment directly on the experimentation that Oxford University does? Uh, well uh, it's uh, Right now, I would say that um, the report we've just released is quite a large comment on the experimentation <laughs> that all universities do, um, not just Oxford. But we um, we try hard um, to uh, strike a rational balance here. And our summer school here is in one of the colleges in St Stephen's House, and uh, we are um, we try very hard to uh, put forward a rational, um, sympathetic voice for animals um, and try and meet people's concerns where they are. I could imagine the centre could be somewhat of a thorn in the side of the university at some point. <laughs> oh, we try not to be. We try to be as constructive as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the report. The report 
is entitled Normalising the Unthinkable. Could you tell listeners about the background to it? Um, sure. Um, so in 2013, um, the centre was commissioned by the BUAV, that's British Union for Abolition of Vivisection, um, to produce an independent review of the ethics of using animals in research. Um, BOV, of course, is not a neutral bystander in the debate about animal testing, um, but I think it's a real testament um, to them that they were prepared to commission an independent academic report and that they had nothing to do with our conclusions. Um, yeah, so we started um, setting up a working group um, to work on this issue in 2013, and it was just published in March. Looking at your centre and, and the background, that you're a choice that's likely to be against animal experiments or am I wrong are, are there <laughs> pro-animal use members of academia as part of your centre well um, it's not uh, as uh, Max Weber says all knowledge comes from a particular point of view I'm not saying ours doesn't either um, but if you want to write a left wing history of the world you look critically at the right wing views of the world and so what we tried to do in our report was take the strongest arguments we could find in favour of animal experimentation and ask ourselves you know did do these have any ethical academic merit? And uh, we found them wanting. Um, the, I think that as an institution, um, we don't specifically ask our uh, fellows, how do you feel about animal experimentation? Uh, <laughs> it's not a criteria of becoming part of the fellowship. Um, but an, a general animal sensibility is um, caring about uh, animals and their suffering is is a criteria. So I suppose it's not uh, that uh, likely that many of our members are truly pro-research. On the other hand, um, I don't believe in closing off the dialogue. Um, I think, you know, I recently just went to speak in Switzerland to a whole room full of people who um, practice the three R's but who actively experiment on animals. And I think... Uh, if you only talk to yourselves, you never get anywhere. So although we are um, for animal ethics, um, we, we try to evaluate this as independently and as uh, objectively as humanly possible. Just for listeners that aren't totally familiar with animal experimentation, can you explain to listeners what the three R's are? Sure. So the three R's are a... Uh, um, a theory put forward by Russell and Birch, I think, in the 19, late 1950s. Um, and basically, they uh, advocate uh, the, the use of the three R's, which are um, uh, reduce, uh, refine, and replace in animal experimentation, which is basically a model that tries to get people to use less animals um, by refining their processes, by reducing the number they use, and by finding alternatives. Um, it's something that uh, I think all of the EU countries have now signed up to, um, and it's one of the big terms that people use um, to say that they're reducing animal experiments. What's your feeling on the three R's? I have found um, no is the short answer. It is, it's a very flawed theory. People pay lip service to it. Um, a lot of them, uh, many countries have signed up to it, but in practice that uh, it hasn't meant the reduction of animal experiments. Indeed, worldwide animal experiments are increasing year on year. However, having been in that room with many scientists, I, I got a... I got a clearer understanding of how many institutional and bureaucratic uh, and indeed scientific barriers there are to implementing them. Um, even when you find a replacement that could save hundreds of animals' lives, the process of implementing that is incredibly slow. Like, it can be over decades. And uh, that part was, it, it highlighted to me just how incredibly difficult um, the implementation of the three R's is. Um, so I think it's a, it, it, in my opinion, I'm not speaking for the centre here, but in my opinion, it is something that uh, people uh, sign up to, but it only pays lip service to really reducing animal experiments. It is not 
uh, an effective way of doing so. Maybe we'll uh, talk more about that later, but I'd like to go back to um, the centre or or the working group that was commissioned to work on this report. Um, can you tell us about the kind of people that compri comprise the working group and what their backgrounds are? Sure. Um, so the, um, the working group has consisted of uh, 20 academics um, led by um, myself and Andrew um, as the editors of the report. Um, they're from six countries um, from around the world and uh, all but one of them were fellows of the centre. So how it worked was we asked for volunteers. Um, we said to our fellowship, we're doing this project, who would like to be involved? And we had a, we had a fantastic response. Um, so actually we had a very wide range of disciplines um, uh, taking from the philosophy, science, history, theology, law, critical animal studies and sociology. Um, so it was very, very broad, um, which I think gave uh, real depth to the report. And in fact, we never expected the report to be this long. Um, we were really hoping only for about 15,000 words and it ended up to be 52,000 words. I am going to ask you to summarise it nevertheless. So uh, <laughs> we'll start off with a, a summary of the conclusions. Sure. Um, the report finds that the deliberate and routine abuse of innocent sentient animals involving harm, pain, suffering, stressful confinement, manipulation, trade and death should be unthinkable. Yet animal experimentation is just that, the normalisation of the unthinkable. It's estimated that 115.3 million animals are used in experiments worldwide per annum. In terms of harm, pain, suffering and death, this constitutes one of the major moral issues of our time and the report calls for animal experimentation to be denormalized and deinstitutionalized. One thing that I noticed in the executive summary of the report was a statement that examining the evidence and thinking outside the box has not been an easy experience and we deeply wish we could have published a more emollient and less controversial report. Could you uh, elaborate on that statement a little? Sure. Well, I think when you look deeply at any animal issue, it isn't an easy experience um, for anybody. Uh, and there were moments of real darkness, I have to say, in examining this report. It's uh, sometimes in my job, when you look closely at what humans do to animals, it can be... Um, a rather difficult experience um, but perhaps more than other animal issues animal experimentation is controversial and emotive subject um, not least of all because it's frequently associated with saving human lives from terrible illness um, we have those ideas paired in our minds and regardless of the accuracy of that statement um, we had to follow the evidence as it led us um, which was uh, to the exclusion that animal experiments are fundamentally, morally and scientifically flawed. Um, many people are going to find that a very controversial and difficult statement and in a way I wish I could have, we could have looked at it and said, hey, they're really not as bad as we thought. But actually it really is much worse than I ever imagined. I think in the uh, summary there was a mention that animal experimentation was characterised in previous debates in a certain way that you no longer think is appropriate. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, in the 18th uh, and 19th century, um, that's where, the, where we have the roots of our... Although animal experimentation has happened since ancient antiquity, um, the roots of the current debate are really located there. And we have terms that we're still using that really characterize the debate in an unhelpful way. For example, vivisection, which means to cut live animals, um, and anti-vivisection, and now the rather outdated notions because the scale of experimentation has changed. Um, animal uh, anti-vivs, as they were known then, um, are focused primarily on the duty to promote kindness and prevent cruelty, but they didn't really consider the moral status of animals. And science at the time had a real sense, a real belief uh, that they could cure human disease with animal research. And the optimism that you see in the early pro-literature 
hasn't really been borne out. Um, uh, of course, great advancements have been made in science, and I'm not denying that. But the idea that they've been able to universally wipe out and vanquish illness hasn't turned out to be actually true. And the main thing that's missing from the old debate is that um, our new knowledge of the level of animal awareness, sentiency, and their ability to suffer. So the old debate really characterized animals as beasts, brutes, subhumans, and they're really pre-scientific understandings of animals, which no longer do justice to where we are now. Um, and the report is a, an attempt really to move beyond that discussion. Claire, you mentioned previously that 115.3 million animals are used per year worldwide. What, this huge number, what are the animals being used for exactly? Well, um, the scale of animal experimentation is vast. Um, it's, they're used for biological studies, for research and development of projects in human medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine, military uses, toxicology, disease diagnosis, diagnosis, education and training, and that's not to mention all the ones that are used in cosmetics and household testing. Um, the scale is vast. In fact, that number is quite a conservative estimate because uh, many countries don't publish how many animals they use. So um, it is a very calculated estimate, um, but we can't be sure. Now, the, uh, the justification given is that this is for scientific and life-saving reasons. But the report states that the normalization of the unthinkable is supported by an overconfidence in animal experiments as a technique. Could you talk some more about that? Um, that's right, that's right. We often hear that the use of animals is necessary, um, that, we can't, that it's just required, um, especially because science makes great advancements. And we hear this a lot with uh, cancer research and uh, um, research into Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, that we have to research on animals because uh, it's the only way to make scientific progress. And what we found during the report was that actually that's just simply not accurate. Um, for example, um, in the US, 92% of drugs that pass preclinical tests, which are mostly animal tests, fail to make it to the market because they're proven to be ineffective or unsafe in people. Um, which is to say broadly that animals are not good models <laughs> for human experimentation. And that's for three broad reasons. Um, one is that stressed animals in a laboratory environment yield poor data. Um, they don't behave in the way they're supposed to behave, and it can cause psychological and physiological changes that affect the research data in ways you can't predict. Um, also, animals do not naturally develop most human diseases. So um, when you are trying to cure human disease in an animal, you are um, trying then to recreate that human disease in an animal, which is a fundamentally flawed process um, because we can't create the same processes that create it in humans, which means that we can't um, get to the heart of the causality of the problem in humans which is all to say, really, that animals are not miniature humans, um, despite attempts to genetically alter them and mimic human phys physiology. Um, we are not, despite our genetic closeness to, say, non-human primates, um, our physiological and genetic differences are inherent, and they remain an insurmountable obstacle to using animals to predict human outcomes. Um, and so, basically, on a fundamental level, and I'm not saying that there has been no scientific progress, but it is the assumption that we can create something in, uh, that we can fix something in an animal, and that will be the same in a human, is a flawed assumption. And it's borne out by the fact that after you've gone through all these animal testings, you then have to test on humans, and 92% of those drugs don't work. <laughs> um, so it's just not fair to say, really, that there's the only choice is between experimenting on animals or giving up on scientific progress. And the old cliched argument was your child or your dog. 
which is the metaphor that was used. Can you elaborate why that is such a flawed metaphor? Sure. Well, the metaphor, um, your child or your dog, supposes that there is a direct choice to be made between saving your child or saving your dog. In fact, in the entire history of animal experimentation on, or experimentation on both humans and animals, there is not one direct choice of that kind supposed. There is never a question of simply if ever, but of simply never. Early animal vivisectionists characterize this as uh, not a question of your dog or your baby, but one of your dog and your baby. <laughs> because even if you experiment on your dog, you have to then go on to experiment on your baby. A thing that I found somewhat strange in the summary was the statement that the idea that animals are just tools for human use is discredited. It may be the members who have written the uh, report may say that it's discredited, but billions of animals are killed every year just for food. And, and as a vegan that seems to be surviving okay, I would say that it's for culinary entertainment. Um, the general population really doesn't see animals as as much more than tools for human use um i i completely understand where you're coming from um what the heart of that statement is the idea that uh, during the last 40 years that there's been considerable growth in intellectual work on the ethical status of animals and uh, this work has challenged the ideas um, that humans should have absolute priority, um, that animals exist for human beings, and that humans should be distinguished and separated from animals in terms of us and them. But I can see uh, what you mean, that, uh, of course, animal exploitation is everywhere, so it seems hard to see that that notion is discredited. And, of course, we still have a very long way to go, especially when it comes to animal agriculture. But certainly these ideas have been academically discredited, um, even if they have yet to make the full impact uh, that I think both you and I would like them to see on the consumer market. Um, it's true, animals is an issue. Uh, it's, it's like all other reform movements, and I'm fond of that statement by John Stuart Mill, that all reform movements go through uh, three stages, uh, ridicule, discussion, and acceptance. And we're at a place of discussion. We aren't at acceptance yet. But the fact that we are in a place of discussion is a huge step forward. This leads me to uh, another question, um, and it may be going off topic slightly, but how does academic discourse affect the worldview of and I'll use an old-fashioned term that I heard in philosophy class, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Great term. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, um, uh, let me use an analogy. Um, William Temple, who uh, was once Archbishop of Canterbury, was asked by his son, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, if philosophers are so wise, why don't they rule the world? And he his father answered they do just 500 years later oh that's great <laughs> and uh I, I mean that's in some way the trans animals is at a moment of discussion and uh but it's taken centuries uh for us to realize that slavery was wrong um centuries for us to realize that uh women might have equal standing to men but it may even take us longer to realize that animals have moral and intrinsic value in their own worth. Ideas change the world, but they change the world very slowly. Um, however, most people experience, it's interesting that you uh, uh, referred to your philosophy class, um, most people uh, see their education as a forming moment of their life. And what we're trying to do in the centre is try and put animals on the educational and intellectual agenda um, so that when we encounter uh, issues of animals, we encounter them at a moment in which we can still change our lives. So in academia, uh, I would ideally like it to be earlier, um, but you know, we, we do as we can. <laughs> So this normalisation of, of the unthinkable, the usage of animals to such an extent and in such appalling ways, um, 
is being challenged. From an academic or ethics viewpoint, what are the factors that you would say indicate that animals should be subjects of a, a moral consideration? Oh, it's a great question. Um, I think uh, I would want to highlight five. The first is that animals cannot give or withhold their consent. Um, the second is that they cannot represent or vocalise their own interesting interests. The third is that they cannot understand or rationalise their suffering. Four, they are morally innocent or blameless. And five, they are vulnerable and relatively defenceless. These considerations... Um, these considerations, I think, make it uh, very difficult to justify harming animals. And if people want to say, why, why should those conditions matter? Well, the truth is that these are the same moral considerations that we use for the defense of children. Um, because they cannot give and withhold their consent, they can't represent or vocalize their interests, they cannot understand or rationalize their suffering and they are morally innocent and they are vulnerable and defenseless and if we don't accept these as important criteria then we're really undermining uh, the value of uh, infant and child lives as well as other vulnerable adults uh, people in comas or elderly people the cynical part of me accepts that those five categories that animals share with infants and I believe the term is moral patience. However, the cynical part of me states there is a difference and this may be the reason that children are treated differently than animals and that is because children grow up to then be adults in a society and that is why we give children different moral consideration than animals and that is because of the effect of of using or mistreating children would have a great effect on human society afterwards. Um, sure, um, I can I can see why you would get there, and I'm not trying to deny that there aren't real differences between humans and animals. In fact, I think uh, the attempts to suggest that animals are more like us is unhelpful from our, from my perspective because. Um, it can diminish the idea that they are not uh, vulnerable and defenseless. Um, but in terms of children, um, I think the problem with that is that we are assuming that uh, the link between uh, violence towards animals has no impact on violence towards humans. Um, violence towards children can turn into uh, violent, violent adults, but actually... Uh, there's a greater, greater evidence, peer-reviewed scientific evidence that suggests that uh, violence towards animals does immeasurable harm to human beings. In fact, um, it's one of the FBI indicators for being a serial killer of whether you tortured an animals as a child. So the idea that how we treat animals has no idea, no impact upon the society that we then construct it is just flawed. Um, in fact, I think that's, that is one of the strongest arguments for taking um, the care of animals seriously because it does have um, an unquantifiable effect on how, uh, on how uh, human society is shaped. Um, just one recent book in our book series um, by Aisha Akhtar is on um, the link between um, animal health and human health. The better we treat uh, farmed animals in particular, the better human health is. In fact, the worse we treat them, the greater diseases that seem to be created there. So the idea that there is this separation in that sense between how we uh, treat humans and how we treat animals is just false. Could you discuss what you consider are the best arguments in support of vivisection and then mention how you think those are flawed? Sure. We focus primarily on the UK um, because the UK has the greatest legislation, the greatest regulation, um, the greatest inspection of all the countries um, that perform animal experimentation. Um, so in theory, um, the justifications here should be the strongest justifications for it because in theory we have the most control. Um, so we began with the UK and we, in order to avoid bias of saying we're just 
picking on some particular philosophers, we looked at the published reports um, that we could find um, uh, that were in favor of animal experimentation. Um, and the three big ones uh, we considered um, were the UK's Animal Procedure Committee, um, the House of Lords Select Committee, and the Wetherill Report. Um, so I'll take the APC first. Um, uh, the 2003 report argues that even if inflicting suffering is an intrinsic wrong, it may not be an absolute wrong. Um, if it could be shown to be the lesser of two wrongs that we have to make a choice between. Now, this is um, related to uh, your child and your dog, um, because that argument supposes what is in need of justification there is that there is a direct or immediate choice um, to be made between um, animal experimentation and saving human lives. But where the APC actually acknowledges elsewhere is that actually that choice is extremely rare. They say, in animal research, we are rarely, if ever, presented with a stark situation in which we can save the life of a child by taking the life of an animal. So even that ethical argument that they uh, place as the basis of... Uh, um, of their argument is they refute elsewhere so that's the APC and that's probably the strongest argument they make um, it is worth saying actually in all of these reports uh, the ethical considerations aren't given that greater in-depth thought um, which was disappointing um, so in the House of Lords Select Committee um, they argue straight out that animals are unique and that therefore we can use that the human, humans are unique and therefore we can use animals in experiments. What um, criteria is given for humans being unique because all species are unique in their own particular way? Oh, ab absolutely Roy um, but in fact actually this is just sated. <laughs> there okay. isn't any criteria. There isn't any um, justification given. It's just that we are. Um, and, uh, and, and thus we can do this. However, morally, that's counterintuitive. Um, because if, if humans really are unique, um, that can never justify inferior moral treatment. You know, because we are a superior species doesn't mean that we get to treat other species in an inferior fashion. In fact, as a theologian, this, although this is not at all acknowledged in the House of Lords Select Committee, this has its basis in uh, Christian moral reasoning. Um, the idea that animals are, that humans are unique because they are rational um, and immortal and it's taken directly from Thomas Aquinas and that animals are, you know, inferior because they are not rational. Um, but what we've seen in the last 40 years in the growth of uh, I, um, science about animals is we know that animals actually are rational. They have cognitive abilities, that they are sentient, they feel pain, that actually those binary differences are not as strong as uh, they're being supposed to be here. Um, yeah. Uh, the Weatherall Com Committee perhaps uh, makes a better attempt. Um, they argue... Um, um, by using um, a hospital fire scenario um, and they say that we are justified in experimenting on animals because in that scenario we would intuitively choose to save human patients um, before we'd save animals. However, um, this is even more flawed because the conclusion doesn't follow. Um, all that follows, if the results are to be believed, are that humans will, in a given situation, respond in that way. So the scenario is, by definition, a limited crisis situation in, one in which one has to make a direct choice. But, as I've already discussed, animal experimentation is not a direct choice. And from a philosophical perspective, um, it, you can't 
philosophize from a crisis situation to a normal situation. Um, that's, uh, there is a dichotomy there that they are ignoring. And in any case, um, as a side note, my friends who are firefighters assure me that that isn't actually how it works. If you wander into a fire, you save whatever you can as quickly as you can, as quickly as you come to it. So actually, it's just logically um, fallacious. It also implies that there's a human being out there that would prefer to save a dog instead of a human. Then right. it would be then morally justifiable from that for them in future to vivisect humans to save animals. Right, exactly. Um, but just because uh, one person believes that, that is not the same as having um, a rational philosophical basis for that argument. Do any of those three institution justifications for animal experimentation proceed on a utilitarian basis or any other standard ethical framework or is it just a statement that humans are best essentially um some of them consider utilitarianism uh gosh the report is so long i can't remember which one right now um but it's all considered at length in the report and some of them even appeal uh to peter singer um however they do so wrongly um but even if you accept utilitarianism um there's a as an implicit utilitarianism and indeed a complicit consequentialism that is characterized by the media nowadays um if you do something right and the the results are right must have been the right thing um that is implicitly how our society works even though it doesn't seem to be actively discussed and and you see that in uh, utilitarianism uh they, they just assume that it's implicitly within it even if they don't state outright it's implicitly within all of them to say that uh if we can save more humans then it's right to use as many animals as that requires because humans are worth more well there are formulations of utilitarianism that don't have an assumption that humans are best a classic uh, a sure. classic utilitarianism is essentially trading off goods versus bads doesn't necessarily weight humans as more more valuable than an animal no no and indeed bentham himself didn't but they uh but that is the implicit assumption within all the reports although in it may not be outright stated it sounds like they may have a shoddy understanding of classical utilitarianism oh i i uh, i think that that is and all the reports are written by scientists and scientists uh you know people may well argue um isn't it better to leave issues of science to scientists because they know more about it and indeed scientists are best equipped to answer factual questions about uh experimentation however they're not best equipped to address the moral questions of animal experimentations because they aren't experts on morality and i think that's one of the things uh, I really think is really lacking in the discourse, um, even on animal ethics committees that evaluate these things. There are rarely animal ethicists. They're really, even if they're not pro like me, there are pro animals. That is, um, there are rarely philosophers, and it is, it is a discourse <laughs> in which uh, one needs to be versed. And I don't claim to be as well versed as others, but you know I have spent some time studying it. And uh, there is, um, there are intellectual arguments there that ought to be assessed. But most of the time, we just allow science to be uh, the ruler of the discussion because because scientists know about it. Um, we accept their views. It's kind of like going to the doctors. Um, they you're diagnosed with something and they tell you these are the only options well actually there may be a whole range of other options but they're just not ones that the doctors are familiar with uh, but they prescribe certain things based on their medical scientific background and all of the reports exhibit that they are based on scientific backgrounds rather than moral backgrounds and that's what's required to have more 
discussions and morality within the debate. In fact, our report is the only ethical, truly ethical uh, consideration of the issue ever to be written. So with uh, the UK having an animal procedures committee and, and the House of Lords having a select committee and the Wetherall committee, I would imagine there's a great deal of control of animal experimentation in the UK. It certainly seems so, and that's why that's why we focused on it because um, because it, animal experiments are considered to be effect, effectively regulated here by laws, licensing procedures, the inspectorate, and ethical review committees. However, what we found was the institutionalisation. Um, of animal experiments rather than the ability to control them. Uh, where these controls exist, uh, we've, we looked at them as thoroughly as possible and we found them wanting. Um, the uh, ethical review committees um, in the US are, we looked at them in the US as well as the UK, are utterly lacking in independency, so they do not provide a rigorous evaluation of proposals from an ethical point of view. Even within the UK system, um, we find that the inspection process is flawed, that licensing systems um, insufficiently prevent and act upon serious breaches, um, that the, and that the ethical review um, uh, committees are insufficiently independent and reluctant to change. In fact, the US study we looked at um, found that 98% of all procedures uh, were given a green light. Now, of course, they might have gone through some revision, but 98% were okayed, um, which meant that there were very few limitations placed in reality on what they were willing to do. And the three R's, um, which uh, I discussed earlier, um, which are endorsed by the EU, um, that in practice are not uh, implemented and that alternatives are underfunded, undervalued and that they are really the Cinderella of scientific research. What needs to be done? Well, in summary, what needs to be done is that that animal research needs to be um, denormalised and deinstitutionalised and the ethical research techniques need to be fully institutionalized and that there should be a massive switch of funding um, in support of non-animal replacement techniques as a matter of urgency. Um, we're practical. We haven't, we haven't stated outright that animal uh, research could, should be discontinued immediately because that, in effect, isn't going to happen. <laughs> And there's no point recommending something that isn't going to happen. But we do need to move away from the practice that animal experimentation is just what happens. So, for example, in America, um, in order to get funding to um, implement your drug, you have to experiment on animals, even before you use alternatives. So we need to move away from the institutionalization of it. Funding needs to be linked to alternatives as well as in, um, instead of um, animals. And we need to streamline, when we find an alternative that works, we need to streamline the process whereby everybody uses it. That's the other problem. It's such a disparate um, collection of entities that do animal experiments, you know, public and private and universities, um, such that if you find um, an alternative in a privately funded company, they're not going to want to share it with their competitors, even if it would mean saving millions of lives. <laughs> so uh, we need systems by way which those alternatives can be imp implemented where they already exist and in a quick fashion. I saw there's uh, numerous academics from institutions around the world who have supported the report. What's the value of publishing uh, a list of academic supporters? And um, well, yeah, we have over 150 academics, intellectuals and writers um, that have supported the report. Uh, the support of the report has actually been fantastic. Uh, Nobel laureate J.M. Coetzee has backed our report. Um, other signatories include... Uh, uh, bishops, three bishops, um, Professor Keith Ward of Oxford University, Stanley Hauvas, who is a 
titan in uh, Christian ethics of Duke Divinity School. Um, Connor Geerty from the London School of Economics. It has been an impressive list of people. Um, I think the value of having a list of uh, academic supporters is really in showing that uh, the animal experimentations hasn't got as much uh, academic support as you would think. That there is actually a lot of support for the anti-movement and that uh, people are ready for change and change to the intellectual level um, often sadly precedes change to the social level. Um, so the greater intellectual support we can get, hopefully the greater hands-on change that we can make. Now you've got a, an upcoming summer school at the Oxford Centre. What is the role of the summer schools? Um, well, uh, summer school started last year uh, with uh, religion and animal protection. This year's summer school, handily, is on the ethics of using animals in research. And uh, the role is really to open up the debate. So as you said, uh, the the report really demonstrates one side of the argument and our hope is to spread that as wide as possible. Uh, we don't just want to have a summer school that includes only people who are anti-animal uh, experimentation because there wouldn't really be a discussion and we wouldn't really be reaching people. So we're drawing, it's not like other animal uh, experimentation com conferences. We are drawing uh, from all different disciplines. Um, so it's not just all the terrible things that happen. Um, it's quite uplifting, actually. Um, and uh, we have uh, reports on uh, uh, animals in classical antiquity. We have um, ideas on science fiction and sci uh, science fact and science fiction um, we have uh, all different kinds of philosophical um, our views are represented as well as legal views and uh, scientific views so it's really a really open discussion there's a lot of history as well there to be discussed which I think is fascinating so anybody who might be interested in coming can find all the details on our website www.oxfordanimalethics.com um, the call for papers has just clothes so we'll be putting our program up shortly but there are still spaces if people want to attend and whatever your views are we'd love it if you could come and join us and the report is also on the website yeah yes yes everything the report the executive summary our list of signatories can be found on our website oxfordanimalethics.com also uh, the links um, to the summer school but if you're also interested in the journal or the book series or just what we do in general um, you can sign up for our newsletter there too You're listening to 3CR this is Freedom of Species Animal Activism on the Airwaves and that was an interview with Claire Lindsay Deputy Director of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics That wraps up today's show so we'll go out with some more Maslin Jones, Guy Evans and Nick Turner You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.